we are back in Colossians today. So yes, as Daniel already said, if you would get your Bibles out, if you'd like to see what I'm reading today, I am going to be teaching completely out of the New International Version. I worked through the ESV for a while on this message, and there was too much that I had to too much that was challenging in the English. So I said, well, let's set that challenge aside and let's just go today with the NIV. So we're in the NIV today. And um, here we go. So you remember that we're moving through Colossians slowly. The reason for that is that we want to go deep and we want to try to unpack as much of the nuances and the profundity of this, this book. And so we're taking our time. The challenge with that is that um, Paul wrote this book to be read in a single sitting. And so he's constantly referencing things he's already said. He's building arguments and principles on top of other arguments and principles. And so we can forget what those are, and then we get a little bit lost. So I want to read today's passage, and then we'll go back and connect some dots to other passages of Scripture. So this is Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, Paul is saying so much in these few sentences, and he's using a lot of imagery. And of course, he's tying back to the original covenant with the nation of Israel. And so we need to kind of know what those things are. So let's review a few things, and then we'll come back through this passage with those reminders. First of all, remember Paul's purpose in writing this book. He's never been to Colossae. He's never been to Hierapolis. These are believers who have come through the witness of others, particularly Erastus. And so he wants to share what he knows. He's, he, it's like what he did with the Romans. Before he went to Rome, he wrote a very long letter just to introduce himself, to share the fullness of his knowledge. And he's doing that here with Colossae. But I want you to remember his purpose. And this he stated very succinctly for us in chapter 1 verse 28 and that's where paul said he is the one we proclaim jesus of course jesus is the one we proclaim admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in christ all that paul is writing and you remember he's praying for wisdom and understanding. And then he's teaching and writing and proclaiming wisdom and understanding. And his goal here is far beyond knowledge, knowing and being able to articulate dogma, but truly living in the fullness of the gospel, the story of Jesus and all that he's done. And he wants us in that to be formed into fully healthy and whole adults as we were created to be. He wants us to move away from the places where we are not well formed and into a formation of health and wholeness. It's good for us, but it's also good for God because we then become examples and models and witnesses to the hope that we have in a relationship with Jesus. So let's again remind ourselves a little bit about what fully mature in Christ looks like. So mature 
That's, as I said, fully formed, whole, not lacking anything. So Paul is wanting to fill in all the blanks of where we don't understand who God is, what he's done, or who we are and what we need to do. And he wants to see us grow. And in particular, he says, in Christ. You could take this a couple of ways. One way would be simply to say he's talking about spiritual maturity. So mature in Christ or as a Christian or spiritually. I believe, and we'll see this as we move forward today, that it's more than that, that in Christ also has a huge relational aspect to it. So let's take a look at that. We're going to actually back up one verse from the one I just read to Colossians 1.27. This last week, I was uh, sitting with some friends on Zoom call. I have some former students from classes I've taught. One is a missionary in Spain, and the other one is uh, in seminary. He's a father who lives in Colorado, and we were talking through and praying through some things. And I felt like I got some insight a little deeper into this whole idea of being mature in Christ. And so I kind of want to share that with you. You remember that Paul says, uh, I bring to you this big surprise, this mystery. And I was wrestling with, I'm not sure I fully understand what is the mystery. Like, what's the surprise? What was not known? And I believe a piece of it is this. So let me reread Colossians 1.27. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I believe part of the mystery was what was actually assumed was going to happen is that it was going to be Christ over you, the hope of glory. Christ over you, the hope of glory. Israel has always hoped for kings that were their own people, uh, leaders that were benevolent and that loved them and would lead them for their good. That happened for a few hundred years, but most of Israel's history, they are under the, leads, the lead of others, the dominion of others, as you know. And when Jesus came, it was one of the worst times. They weren't in exile in Babylon or Assyria anymore, but they were ruled with an iron fist by Rome. And so they didn't have that freedom. They were looking for a king over them. And I believe the mystery here is this idea that it is not Christ. Well, it is Christ over us. This is true. But I believe there's a second dimension. This is the mysterious side of the leadership of Jesus Christ. And that it is a leadership that is in you as well as over you. Let's review a couple of things in the Gospels that can support what I'm saying. So you remember in John 14, you don't need to turn there, I'll read it for you. But in John 14, Jesus said this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Another because Jesus was the original advocate here. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he is with you and will be in you. Again, in you, in Christ. These are new and mysterious ideas. This was not a part of the original covenant with the Jews. The Spirit was with them, would come over them. Their rulers were over them. But Jesus is saying there's something new happening. This Spirit who has come alongside you will actually dwell or live or reside in you. In you. Hey, this is new. This is different. This is mysterious. This is a big deal. Secondly, later in this dialogue with the disciples in the upper room, recorded in John 15, 15, Jesus says this, 
I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything I learned from my father I have made known to you. Israel had always seen itself as servants of God. And again, this is true. It's also true that there are ways in which we are servants of Christ. We're not saying that isn't true. But Jesus has brought in something new, a mystery, a second reality into relating to him. And that is that he raises us, he elevates us to this place of collaboration where he has no secrets from us. He tells us who the Father is and what he's doing. And then he trusts us to come along and do what he did, to be like him as witnesses, as leaders, as a community. Again, this is all mystery. Let me share one more with you. And I'm pretty confident that this is not what the people of God were expecting. I don't think this is what the disciples were expecting. But in Jesus' prayer, in John 17, he also prays something that is a mystery and that is profound. He says to the Father, my prayer is not for them alone, meaning the twelve, and all the disciples that were currently with Jesus. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also that those who will believe in me through their message, that they all may be one, and listen to what degree, that they all may be one Father, just as you and me, just as you are in me and I am in you. That's the Trinity. That's ultimate intimacy. That's ultimate oneness. We have heard throughout the scriptures this beautiful co-laboring, this beautiful dance, this beautiful um, mutual exaltation and dependence between the Trinity. They work in perfect harmony, glorifying each other and working together. And Jesus is saying, Father, I want to invite these disciples into that level of oneness, of being in you and in me. Father, just as you are in me and I in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So again, think of that mystery, what Jesus is saying, hey, this is a new thing. And Paul is saying, hey, this is a new thing. The original covenant was about kingship over uh, citizens and over slaves and over workers. The new covenant is about intimate, deep relationship, sharing on every level. Not that we become divine, I'm not saying that, but we are invited to share at every level of closeness, of unity, of oneness. It's a shift to tremendous relationship, and not just the relationship of leaders like priests or Moses, but relationship on every level that every one of us, you know, regardless of our age, regardless of what we might do in the church or the level of our maturity in Christ, we are all invited into this depth of oneness. And this is what uh, Paul is wanting to get across to his readers. So now with that in mind, with that backdrop, let's go back to the passage and read it again. Again, Colossians 2 verses 9 to 12. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So the fullness of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, somehow were present within the body that Jesus walked the earth with. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. In Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. So the one that lives in you is the one who is over all. Remember the Christ poem. Uh, Paul is referring back to that here. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, rude by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism 
in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised you from the dead. Okay, let me unpack those last two verses now. The first two we've covered pretty well, just this idea of oneness in Christ, fullness in Christ. But let's, uh, I'll, I'll summarize it this way. So verses 9 and 10 are all about fullness, wholeness, being brought to completeness, not being left partial or incomplete or only partially formed, but fullness. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over all power and authority. Now, <clears throat> let's unpack these last two verses. And these are speaking to us of something that's in addition to this. And thank you, Daniel, for giving me the passage on circumcision. This is fun. So let's take a look at it. Verses 11 and 12 <clears throat> are about covenant. They're about agreement. They're about vows. They're about belonging to each other. And so for us, this idea of circumcision is, in our day and age, it's just a medical procedure. It doesn't have the gravity and the meaning that it did for his writers. And so I want to suggest to you that we might consider for us the symbolism of marriage, because that's more familiar to us. We know what that is, but let's read this. I want to remind you um, what exactly circumcision is. So Gen uh, Genesis 17, verses 10 through 12. I'll go there for you. You don't need to. But this was the original... Um, the initiation of this covenantal symbolism, this mark in the body of the males of the covenant. God said, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep, every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between you and me. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. So this is a, a symbol. The covenant is not the circumcision. The covenant is the agreement as to how God and the nation of Israel was going to relate to one another. And circumcision was to be a mark to remind them. And it was a mark that for the males, they would see daily. And it was a mark that was around intimacy, that a couple would be reminded of this mark when they were together. And so it was a very intimate thing. Again, not a part of our culture, and so that might be difficult. So for us, uh, the mark that we have is that we wear rings in our covenant with uh, men and husbands and wives. And so that might be a symbol. The only unique thing is the thing, the, the reason a ring doesn't work is in the covenant of circumcision, there was something that was removed. Circumcision was a removal of a piece of the person. And Jesus, or Paul, I'm sorry, is going to make a parallel about that removal. So we have to kind of keep that in mind. So this idea of rings only goes so far. But bottom line, what we're looking for here is a permanent mark that um, solidifies and reminds us constantly of the covenant that we have. So let's get into this in a little bit more detail. Paul uses the phrase, circumcision made with hands. And that's the circumcision that we just talked about in Genesis. Uh, circumcision made with hands. Now Paul contrasts a new circumcision. He calls it the circumcision of Christ. He says it's not made with hands, but instead it's this. It's just a simple phrase in chapter 2, verse 11. Your whole self ruled by the flesh 
was put off or was cut off or was taken away. Your whole flesh, I'm sorry, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off. What does this mean? I'm sure that, that most of you know, but we can talk about it just a little bit. Uh, I think of it this way. Um, several years ago, ah, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I don't remember. Uh, I found out that I had uh, cancer, had thyroid cancer. And a thyroid is normally a good thing. It's an organ given to you by God. It regulates hormones for you. It keeps you healthy. It helps fight off disease. However, my thyroid had been fully infected by a cancer, an exposure to radiation at some point in my life. And so what was meant for good, this piece of my flesh here in my neck, had to be removed because it was no longer good. It had been infected with cells that were killing things, that were killing themselves. And so it was no longer a healthy organ and it had to be completely removed. And Paul is making that parallel to say that our whole bodies in some way, because though we are created in the image of God and we are born in beauty and simplicity, we become infected, so much so that it's terminal and our whole body becomes infected with sin. So there can't really be this removal of parts because it's the whole self. It's important that we distinguish, though, please, between uh, my essence, your essence, your identity, who you are created in God, your spirit, your soul. We're not talking about that. We're talking very specifically about the physical body. This is why it is the will of God that everybody die, because everybody is infected with the cancer of sin. And we don't want to carry that cancer with us forward into the next life and into eternity. So everybody must die so that the cancer can be removed. But even before the body dies, Jesus has come to separate out within us the desires that come from God and the desires that come from somewhere else, from evil and from ourselves. He wants to separate out the ways that we behave and the ways that we act and the false things we believe from what is right and what is good and what is true. So even while we're still in these bodies of flesh, God is wanting to remove actually for a season. He wants to take the cancers out. He wants to remove them and set them aside knowing that ultimately he's going to replace the body with an absolutely pure body. So that's everything that Paul is talking about here. And so he's saying the work of Christ is not just to take away a piece of our bodies, but it's to take away everything that's infected. He wants to make us perfectly clean. You remember 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And, what's the and? and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this is the ongoing work of Jesus Christ. And so what we wear to show that we're Christians isn't a ring, but it's actually a new way of being. It's actually being people and a community of love and forgiveness and goodness and generosity and sacrifice. That is not the normal human community, is it? The normal human community is so many other things that are on the front page right now but we are a new community in Christ. So the mark of our change, the permanent mark of the reality that we belong to Jesus is this new person that we become. And the new symbolism here is not circumcision, but it's actually baptism. Baptism is the symbol and the ceremony that Christians go through to mark us. So Paul says here at the end of the passage we're studying today, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. 
I was at a retreat this last week with Daniel and the other pastors from Colossae, and I asked them about uh, why they thought that it is important that we are identified with the burial of Christ. Like, I get the crucifixion, that's death to the old person, and I get resurrection, that is coming alive again as a new person, but what is burial about? And it seemed like the shared answer that we had was, well, you just know you're dead that way. You just completely know you're dead that way, if you're buried. And then that reminded me of some of the pastors that I've talked to, or not even just pastors, people who have baptized, say, yeah, when I baptize someone, I kind of like to hold them under for a couple of seconds, just so they kind of feel the burial part of it. Interesting idea. I promise to you that we won't do that, especially children, no fears. We are not going to make sure you know that you're buried. We are going to raise you back to life again. So I want to go a little bit deeper with this idea of baptism just to give you a full picture. And so what I want to do now is read a few verses from Romans where Paul goes into greater depth as he writes his letter to the Roman church. So here is Paul's fullness on baptism. This is Romans chapter 6 verses 8 through 14. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Let no sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought back from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. All right, that was a lot to unpack. And so let me, let me land here. Uh, what's the takeaway? What do we get from here? Again, these are some very profound ideas, and I, I wouldn't pretend to say that we've explained them well and that we've unpacked the wholeness of them, but here's the two ideas I think that we can take away. Jesus has brought an entirely new way of following God, and that new way is a depth of intimacy and oneness with Him, and it's also a fullness in who we can become. For me, as I consider these things, I realize how often I settle for partial maturity, partial obedience, partial experience of the goodness of God, rather than believing in and going after a fullness that each day, each week, I can step deeper into who Jesus is. I can become more like him on an ongoing basis. This is the invitation. Become like me. Follow me. Fullness. And then this other idea of oneness, that I am not trying to be like Jesus, but Jesus himself is here in this body being himself in me. Paul says to the Galatian church, uh, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live now in this body, I live by faith in Christ in me, not in me working hard to obey and follow and do the things that Jesus did. A couple of weeks ago, um, I was really struggling within my own self about not being able to be as good as I want to be. And um, I felt the Spirit say to me, Rick, you don't need to be good. Christ is good. 
He's the goodness. And you just need to let him be in you. And you just need to give space for him to be himself in you. That the goodness that shows up in you isn't your effort. It is the person of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. It is Christ himself who is in me. He is here. It's not a metaphor. It's not a sentiment. It's not a symbol. It's a reality that through Jesus Christ and the new covenant, he is in us. He strengthens these arms. He thinks these thoughts. He expresses his love and goodness when I give him space to do that. But it's Christ in me. It's not me. It's Christ in me. And for me, that was a tremendous relief. Like, wow, I don't have to strive. I don't have to keep a bunch of rules in my head. I don't have to constantly value my behavior and the things I say and do and going, oh, Rick, no, that wasn't good. That wasn't caring. That was harsh. That was, that was rude. But instead, I can take the yoke of Christ saying, Christ, you are in me. Would you live through me? And granted, this is a lifelong pursuit. And we get better and better at it. It's training, but it's what we have. The hope is not in who we are, but the hope is in who Christ is in us.